In Britain and across the world, there is a crisis. A crisis of misinformation, disinformation, and politics, where opinions are weaponized and hailed as fact, and science is the enemy. The press, where so much of our pain is disseminated to the public and more often than not met with unkindness, hostility, and disdain. Every fortnight on Media Watch, we invite a guest who, within their field, is seeking to correct this imbalance and recenter the truth. Not through unfounded opinion, but with facts and objectivity, challenging, interrogating, and highlighting the misinformation, lies, and bigotry. But it's not all doom and gloom. We're also going to celebrate and shine a light on our successes, our wins, and our moments of triumph as a community, both within the mainstream media and our own. Welcome to Media Watch with me, your host, Shamir Sunny. Today, I am joined by my friend and comrade in arms, Josh Rivers. And in this episode, we'll be discussing a recent Sunday Times opinion piece that touches upon cancel culture. Josh Rivers is the former editor of Gay Times. Unsavory tweets from Josh's younger years led him to being removed from his post and subsequently thrown into an online onslaught from the LGBTQ community and others that was traumatic for everyone. All of this occurred at a time when Josh was beginning a journey of growth and transformation, one which was accelerated by this incident and led to Josh becoming a beacon of hope to many within the community. You may be asking why I've brought Josh on the show today. Well, Josh may have been cancelled, but what came out of it has been one of the most extraordinary journeys of transformation and growth that I have witnessed. So I wanted to bring him to the table to discuss the Sunday Times article in light of his first-hand experience. Josh Rivers is now the host of Busy Being Black, a podcast that everyone should be listening to after this episode, and also the head of communications for UK Black Pride, where he has played an integral role in making it Europe's biggest queer POC event. Hi, Josh. <laughs> Hi, Sham. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. You know what? I'm going to flip the script. I know this is your show, but I'm going to ask you what I ask all my <laughs> guests. I'm busy. How's your heart, babe? <laughs> my heart is good. My heart is... I'm in the middle of nowhere in uh, Pakistan. I have a pool and a bench outside. And so I'm here for a week where I literally just sit on my ass uh, and do nothing. Mm -hmm. So... <clears throat> I think I've never felt so spiritually cleansed, ever. Oh, that's so good to hear. So I'm in a good place. How is your heart? My heart is good. It's full. I'm making some changes in my personal life that I'm already starting to see kind of the emotional and mental benefit of. And I'm not someone who's good at like planning. I can only do things day by day or as, as stuff rolls into my life. And so trying to stay committed to these changes is challenging, but it's a challenge that I'm kind of open, I'm, I'm open to and, and taking head on. So I, I feel good. My heart feels full. Uh, where are you now? I'm in Norwich at my mom's. I wanted this discussion, and this is more directed towards the listener. I wanted this discussion to be about cancel culture 
in a way that kind of closes off this long, this lo- very long year of constant bombardment from the press regarding cancel culture. It's where both the right and the left, particularly in Britain and in America, have had a relentless focus on cancel culture and the fear of cancel culture and what it can do to people across the kind of political spectrum. But more importantly, a lot of the vim has been from the right. And so I wanted to pick up the Wikipedia page on cancel culture and it defines cancel culture as a modern form of ostracism in which someone is thrust out of social or professional circles, whether it be online, on social media, or in person. Those who are subject to this ostracism are said to have been cancelled. The notion of cancel culture is a variant on the term call-out culture and constitutes a form of boycotting or shunning involving an individual, usually a celebrity, who is deemed to have acted or spoken in a questionable or controversial manner. Josh is um, two people who have experienced this. Um, <laughs> yes. In more ways than one. Mm-hmm. What by this definition would have experienced it, although we weren't necessary celebrities, we kind of, it sort of comes with the cancellation, particularly if you are a member of the public. So there's an article in the Sunday Times titled Schisms and Witch Hunts, Atheism is Behaving Like the Religions It Denounces by Sarah Ditton. And in it, she writes, for a group of people who think of themselves as cool, rational, and reasonable, they seem to have got awfully evangelical. They've also started turning on one another. Last week, Richard Dawkins, probably the world's most famous atheist, was effectively excommunicated by a branch of the movement he helped to found when the American Humanist Association withdrew his 1996 Humanist of the Year award. Dawkins' sin, failing to profess the correct beliefs about trans people. In a tweet, he had offered the following conversation starter. Some men choose to identify as women and some women choose to identify as men. You will be vilified if you deny that they literally are what they identify as. Discuss. End quote. For the American Humanist Association, this amounted to Dawkins using, quote, the guise of scientific discourse to demean marginalized groups, an approach antithetical to humanist values. Simply posing the question was transphobic, and so Dawkins' honor was revoked. Now, Josh, we know where this goes, and we know what these conversations are used for, but I wanted to know your thoughts on that brief excerpt from this article, and also maybe if you could expand on your position on cancel culture. I was speaking to my friend about Kevin Hart, and they were like, my biggest fear is cancel culture. And I asked them, why do you fear cancel culture? Who's been canceled? And they were like, Kevin Hart. And I was like, but Kevin Hart just had a Netflix show after he was apparently canceled. And he's got a movie coming out. And he's got a movie coming out. And he's still a multimillionaire. So how is he canceled? And then he goes, well, because he wasn't allowed to host the Oscars or whatever it was. And I said, okay, so the Oscars or the Grammys said, no, we don't want you here because we don't agree with what you said. 
How is he canceled? And so he goes, well, an opportunity was taken from him. And I said to him, well, I get opportunities taken from me all the time. I haven't said anything bad. So am I canceled? And he was like, no, but you know, it could have been huge for him. He had a huge opportunity taken away from him. He's been canceled. So I said, your definition of cancellation is if someone gets an opportunity taken away from them. And they were like, no. And so when, I, when you get the cr to the crux of what people mean when they say canceled, they never really have an answer. Well, I just wanted to know to you, what is being canceled? What does being canceled look like? I think that the definition of cancel culture is quite reductive and quite flat. I think in, in both of these instances, uh, let's start with Richard Dawkins. He has said something clearly transphobic, right? And anyone who is standing up for trans people and non-binary people, or indeed anyone's right to self-identify, would rightfully say, well, what he said, what he believes, it goes against our values. And so we would prefer not to be associated with that person. Kevin Hart was canceled on social media. And I don't think that that's the same thing as being canceled. I don't know. Like, it's so confusing. I think that we have to kind of complicate what it means to be canceled. I think in, in my case, it was, you know, I lost my job. I lost professional contacts. I was incredibly embarrassed. It was traumatic experience, but I got back on my feet, right? And I think that what we tend to forget in this kind of cancel culture is we, we, we call it cancel culture, we point at someone doing something wrong, but we don't kind of investigate what happens after that or, or what the point of that cancel culture is in the first place. And so my position is I said something wrong. I said a few things wrong when I was in my mid-20s. And I have to pay the price for that. I have to own up to that and take accountability for that and put my hands up and say, yeah, I did something wrong. I'm sorry. And then go about doing the work to make sure that people know that I'm not the person I was when I was 25. So for me, I don't think I was canceled. I think that I was called out on my bullshit. And that's the issue is that people are looking at cancel culture and they're going, well, this isn't fair or they're losing opportunities. No, but at what point do you own up? to the stuff that you've done wrong? And at what point do you apologize? Like the, the issue isn't that people are calling you out. The issue is that you're being a dickhead. So how do you plan on rectifying that? So I think that the focus of cancel culture is all wrong, right? It, it becomes about a group of people speaking up and quote unquote, taking opportunities away from people instead of, well, actually that person did something egregious and they shouldn't have that opportunity in the first place, right? When are they gonna take responsibility for what they said and who they, who they are, or who they were? I've been really th thinking about where cancel culture came from and or where this idea of cancel culture came from. And I remember a lot of the LGBTQ queer groups that were on Facebook and a lot of the social justice groups that were on Facebook were always very heated. And there was always this kind of process of where someone would come in, someone would say something wrong, and then everyone would sort of come in and go, you're wrong. This is why you're wrong and this is bad. And so a lot of the times people would react to them being called out in a very kind of aggressive way, which is like, I'm, you guys are all being mean. You're not letting me, I'm just expressing my opinion. And that kind of, the, the culture of that actually post Tumblr, post Facebook translated into like public discourse around holding people accountable and calling people out. Uh, what, what the right would describe as like woke culture. And what I've sort of seen, and I'm sure many people have observed, is the fear of cancel culture is directly tied to the fear of 
progressive values and progressive movements. It's directly tied to black liberation. It's directly tied to queer liberation. And it's directly tied to a whole new generation of people who have access to information and the ability to speak up when they see injustice or something wrong. And so... But, but is it a fear of cancel culture or is it a resistance to or resentment of cancel culture? Because I think if we're looking at this through the lens of the right wing, or which is ostensibly looking at it through the lens of whiteness, then it makes sense that a, that a, a resistance to cancel culture, which originated as a kind of a calling out culture, or a calling in culture, it makes sense they would resist this, right? Because they can't just continue spewing the hate that they want to. And so they're like, ah, this cancel culture has to stop because it's infringing upon my right to be a dickhead publicly. But I, I think there's a bit of resentment in that, that people who previously didn't have a voice collectively to speak truth to power so directly and at such a volume and at such size, at such scale rather, um, can now do so, right? And people don't like that. And I think with in the advent of social media, there is a kind of imbalance of what that is and what that looks like and what it means to call someone out or, or, or to hold someone accountable. Because oftentimes it, it's all on social media and it doesn't really lead to any substantial growth or change unless that person that is being cancelled or the person that is being held accountable allows themselves and is surrounded by people who can help them come out of that, right? Well, this is, you raise a really good point. What is the intention behind a cancellation is probably what people need to think about. So I can think of instances in which, oh, he's cancelled. That's Kevin Hart. Oh, he's cancelled, right? In which case, it's just like, we're not fucking with him anymore, Right, like I think cancel culture is a bit of that too. Like for us, I'm just not fucking with him anymore. I'm not going to watch his stuff. I'm not going to listen to his stand up. Not going to follow him on social media. I'm just not going to pay attention to him anymore. What he does in his own space is none of my business. I don't care. He's not on my radar anymore. There's that version of cancel, and there are other versions of cancel culture, which is not actually cancel culture, but is rather what we do kind of in community, which is a calling in culture, right? Which is saying, and sometimes very loudly, you've really messed up but not excommunicating that person from the community, right? And so I think there's this conflation between, you know, the intended recipient and the intention. And I think that people have to be clear about that. Frankly, I'm not invested in Kevin Hart's personal and spiritual development, right? Like, I have other things to worry about. He's a millionaire. Like, we're not on the same level. And I don't need to concern myself with him. I'm more concerned with people in our community who want to do what good things, but who aren't quite there yet and might need a bit more help getting there. I was one of those people. I've had this kind of back and forth between cancel culture is a myth, but also it's not, but also it is. And what I mean by that is I've had this constant kind of, I've really had to dive deep into what it means to be canceled and what that looks like and who is leading the conversation in what that looks like and what that is. And I find now, particularly in Britain, that conversation around what cancel culture is and what it means has been dominated by the right-wing press. It's been dominated by people on the right, like J.K. Rowling, be it Lawrence Fox, be it anyone from The Telegraph or The, or the Sunday Times. It's this serious focus on the attacks of the left 
on people who say things that the left doesn't agree with, which has always been the case. It's just now I find that it has turned into another political tool to silence progressive voices, silence people of color, and silence queer people. And so really what's happening is in the greater conversation, in the increasing conversations of cancel culture, what's happening is that black and brown people and queer people are being silenced. It's such a clear example of how white supremacy and the right wing, I don't think they're different, use something that we do or have done and mm -hmm. twist it to become a weapon. And that's what my fear is now. My fear now is with the way that the press has turned, is working actively to create misinformation and disinformation about woke culture, progressive alliances, progressive movements, and also queer people and people of color actively and using our reluctance to accept growth and accountability as a weapon against us. The thing I'm thinking of is who gets to cancel whom? Right? Who has the power to cancel is the thing. And that's part of it, right? Like, there are so many people who, who can say something online and kind of join a kind of what can be a very toxic conversation around a quote-unquote cancellation. And the reason it doesn't have any kind of material impact in the life of the person who's canceled, i.e. Kevin Hart, is because Kevin Hart is not accountable to the people who canceled him. He's accountable to yeah. the people who pay his, <laughs> his multi-million dollar checks. And so I think that's an interesting point, too, is that who's accountable to whom? Who can cancel whom? And that's the frustration, I find, right? The frustration is you're saying we're canceling him, but we haven't done anything. We've just said you're prick. Like whether that yeah, be J.K. So Rowling <laughs> or Kevin, it doesn't matter. It's like yeah. you're an asshole. We don't like you. If you apologize, sure, whatever, like apologize. But the people they're defending are the people who genuinely cannot be held accountable by the people calling them out. So like, right. what the fuck is the point? It's just a system protecting people who are already powerful. <laughs> like, Yes, and I want to flag two things here. If I remember correctly, canceled started out as a joke. Like it was kind of yeah. um, urban, <laughs> urban. <laughs> you know, it was a thing that, that um, black Twitter said as a joke, right? You're canceled, right? And it became this thing yeah. that white people got their hands on and it turned into a very serious thing. And the same with woke. Woke was a piss take of kind of hotep black people, like being, you got to stay woke. And it actually became a thing that people aspire to now. So I just think it's, it's funny that these things out of context or are taken from, mined from, communities like the black community, like black Twitter, and turned into something, and now it's a bad thing that, that the right wing uses. It's like, it's like jihad, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can make that joke on here, but whatever. <laughs> Talk to me a little, Josh, about how you felt in that moment where the pylon happened. And walk me through how you sort of came out of that to a point where you said, I'm different, I'm better, I'm good, and people around me are recognizing that. Well, I think it's worth mentioning that my journey towards being someone useful to the community started long before my work at Gay Times. And indeed, what led me to Gay Times was this desire to create space, a representation for people like me who needed more positive voices, examples um, to follow. And so I think that when the pylon happened, when the story broke um, via BuzzFeed, I think I felt like all the work that I had done to get myself to a place where I was useful was for nothing. I felt like it would mean nothing 
going forward. And that was part of my heartbreak in that moment was that I had let down the people I had worked so hard to trust me. And I thought that I wouldn't be able to gain that trust again. And it was awful. You know, I remember being in the Gay Times office, like all of us just kind of staring at Twitter as like it became a trending topic. Just all of us just kind of really mortified. And then I went home <laughs> and uh, turned off all the lights and kind of crawled into the couch and um, turned off my phone and just was alone and was crying my eyes out. But a turning point or an aha moment came pretty quickly after that. I think it was the second day when I was invited onto Radio 4 and had this interview on Radio 4. By the time I got back from the studio, my voice was on the radio and I heard how empty I sounded and I started crying. And I thought, this has to be for something. It doesn't make sense otherwise. It doesn't make sense that all this has been kind of unearthed if I can't do something with it, if I can't make some good out of it. And so that helped in the kind of immediate aftermath was that I'm gonna ride this out because I can do something with this. It has to be for some sort of good. But I remember feeling like I went to my, like, my, local, my local shop and saw my picture on the front page of the paper and I was mortified, <laughs> like mortified. And it's just, it was really embarrassing. And then luckily I had lots of people around me who just started coming over and showing up and bringing food and bringing wine and talking to me and offering me books to read and tell me about their own experiences with mistakes and growth and transformation. And I think it was Campbell X called me and said, you fucked up, but get back out there because we need you. And so it was like that. It was, there was a great deal of support, but it was awful. It was an awful experience. That's the thing that, that really scares people that are white about this whole idea of like people calling you out and, and in public is that actually, though we go through, may go through trauma at the hands of the press, we have a community that still understands the complexity of and the, and the viciousness of the press and of the way public media covers issues of, of the individual and personhood because making a villain still sells the most tabloids. It gets you the most clicks. Well, and the people around me, this speaks to that complexity you're talking about, this ability to hold multiple truths at the same time. Because while the people around me said, yikes, this is bad, you fucked up, they were also saying, and this is a racially motivated attack, right? So they weren't, in the way that white people kind of rally around each other, whether you've said something wrong or not, but especially when you said something wrong, white people rally around each other and go, it doesn't matter, stop yelling at us like that, right? Whereas I was surrounded by people who were going, you messed up and also this was racialized. And so there, there's accountability and also understanding. There's accountability and also compassion. And I think that was really important and helped me understand that while I, I would never wish that on anybody, not even the person who weaponized my tweets against me, it made me like move past that pretty quickly to say it doesn't matter why it happened. It doesn't matter that it was racialized. It doesn't matter the, the malintent behind the person who dug those out and sold them. What matters is what I do now. What matters is what I stand for. What matters is how I show I'm sorry and, and how I show my community that I care. I think you've shown that, but I just want to reiterate <laughs> that I think you have shown that. And that now my personal opinion is that for someone to have been through that is enough of work to offset the awful things that you would have said or did or have done. And so this is why I believe, you know, people of color 
for example, and Black people are always tone policed. So when we point at something and say that's wrong, the number one response is, you don't, no, that, don't say it to me like that. You don't have to say it like that. Don't raise your voice. There are better ways to do this, right? And we see that on a really big scale, like with protests and riots. There's a way for you to express your anger, but not like that. And so we're constantly tone policed. And so I think that when outrage happens on a scale, it's very easy for us, all of us, to say, I don't like the way you've said that as a way of kind of absolving ourselves from really hearing what someone is saying. But I don't think that it's the responsibility of an offended person or a minoritized person to say politely, you've hurt my feelings or you've said something wrong. No, they can say it however they want. What are you gonna do with the message, right? How are you gonna hear what they said? And I think that becomes really important. And I believe that no matter how someone says something to you, if it's true, you gotta go about fixing it. You know, it's with everything. Like when when J.K. Rowling was called out, I remember everyone, everyone going, that's really bad and this is why. Her and her supporters were sort of going, she's just expressed an opinion and you guys need to shut up. Whereas everyone's going, hey, this is wrong. We're explaining why it's wrong. It's hurtful. It's damaging. Here are some statistics. Here's how you can be better. Absolutely. There, there are all yeah. these offerings, actually, right? And I think that what yeah. people miss in this conversation about J.K. Rowling, and indeed Kevin Hart, right, was that there were so many people who were offering a better way of doing things, who were saying, in Kevin Hart's case, this is what, hap- this is what homophobia does in the Black community specifically, and here's why you should address that. But his focus was, I've already said sorry. And it's like, no, but you're not listening to what people are telling you. Same thing with J.K. Rowling. People are going out of their way to provide information. Hey, we believe in you, J.K. Rowling. We believe in the power you have. We believe in what you've created in the world. Here's how you could be better and how you could say this better. But they just shut down because the point isn't that they want to be better. The point is that they want to be able to speak freely without anyone calling them out on their shit. And so then this kind of fence... Speak freely and cause harm. Yeah. And the fence comes up, right? This blockade. And the blockade isn't just like a a personal blockade, right? These people in positions of power have literally armies of people coming around them to point at other people telling them why they're stupid or wrong or you know ignorant or whatever for bringing up helpful ways for people to be better at the end of the sunday times article by sarah ditham the one about dawkins suddenly randomly starts referring to got mick of rupaul's drag race and she says still Dawkins can thank the impersonal forces of nature that he isn't a drag queen. The finale of the latest season of RuPaul's Drag Race, broadcast yesterday, then, included the show's first trans man contestant, the impeccable Got Mick. But if you mention that, make sure it's only in a spirit of celebration. New paragraph. If you even suggest there may be something absurd in a woman who transitioned to become a man being celebrated for playing a woman, the acrylic nails will be out for you. When the Series 9 queen Nina Bonino-Brown joked on social media about Gottmik's impressive curves and smooth tuck, other stars of the show were quick to call the comments transphobic, hateful, and even violent. Other people's genitals are really none of your business, said one. Sarah continues, well, that's news to me after 13 series of contestants being scrutinized by the judges for any telltale bulges. If Drag Race is the Olympics of drag, as RuPaul likes to style it, then being female is surely the most blatant kind of doping. 
But as anyone who loves the show can tell you, the only rule that really counts is what Rue wants. And tuck or no tuck, Gottmik is a brilliant queen. A shit sandwich, is that what that is? <laughs> the, <laughs> impeccable, the impeccable Gottmik, flawless queen, and in between like a transphobic diatribe. I find it really astonishing. Astonishing, not, you know, not astonishing because it's the Sunday Times and that's what they print. But astonishing how these vehicles of transphobia that the Sunday Times has become and indeed so much of our press has become like in, under the guise of kind of an honest critique of what we're seeing in the world. It, it's not a huge jump. Like there was no confusion for so many people watching that Gottmik was a trans man and yeah. was doing drag. Like, okay, so Gottmik's a man and he's doing drag. Big deal, yeah. you know? Like, but yeah. it's actually everybody else who kind of then drills down into this and says, this doesn't make sense. It makes it a big deal and it's absurd. It's not absurd. It's really revealing about this kind of deep discomfort and deep transphobia that is kind of baked into our media. It's just mean. Like, what the fuck? What are you trying to say? Like, what is the purpose of you saying this? But of course, these are the same people who will argue that trans people shouldn't play sports with cisgender people, right? Well, this is normally one way, isn't it? That trans women shouldn't play women's sports. It's the same people, right? That the underlying biology, fuck your feelings, fuck how you feel. It's about your biology. It's about whether or not you have a dick or a vagina. It's crude, it's old, it's antiquated, and it's mean. Yeah, they scream logic and science are on their side. But when entire organizations that are full of philosophers or scientists, like the American Humanist Association, say, no, this is wrong. They're up in arms and like, it's woke culture. It's suddenly, science doesn't matter. Now we can make it political. So there's no actual substantial reason, except that they're uncomfortable, except that they don't understand it. And because they don't understand it, they resent it. And they do it with black folk, they do it with Muslims, they do it with everyone. Yeah. Right, we need to leave it there for a moment, but after this ad break, we'll be diving deeper into the history of the press and their subjugation of queer people. Hey, media, watch this. No, 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 what the hell is this? I mean, this sounds different. Where uh, are this, we? This isn't our snatch music. Bring back the snatch music, please. <sighs> Okay, that's better. Hey, Media Watch listeners, it's Sam and Umar here from Snatched, our Gay Times original podcast about all things drag race. Each week, we've been giving our verdicts on the runway looks, speaking about all the drama, conflama, and we have exclusive interviews with some of the most iconic queens in drag race history. All episodes of Snatch Season 1 are available to listen to now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back. This is the part of the show when we look back at excerpts from the Media Watch archive. From 1983 to 2008, Media Watch was a monthly column in Gay Times magazine that critiqued the way the mainstream media reported on gay issues. For this episode, we are looking at the Media Watch column from Gay Times magazine in December 1990, which dealt with the fallout following Justin Fashionu's public coming out. Justin was the first openly gay footballer to play at the top level of the sport. His public coming out saw him get trashed by the mainstream media, criticized by the black community, and even faced resistance from LGBTQ media for the way he handled the story. 
It was a time in his life where Justin needed the support of so many people, but never received it. So here's an excerpt from the Gay Times Media Watch article. The coming out of gay football ace Justin Fashionu has stirred up a hornet's nest of resentment in Britain's black community. The fact that he chose the sleazebag son in which to do it seems to have hurt them most of all. There was, of course, little dignity in making the declaration to Mr. Murdoch's money machine. The story was reduced to a catalogue of gay romps and, most distasteful of all, sex with a Tory MP. As one columnist in The Voice, Britain's, quote, best black newspaper, said, apart from the money, what drives a man to confess his bedroom antics to an anti-gay paper like The Sun? End quote. Right, let's talk about it, Josh. What are your initial thoughts? Thank you for sending me this interesting article from Gay Times in 1990, um, Terry Sanderson's Media Watch, which I was really disturbed to do the calculations and find out that was 31 years ago. Um, there's a couple of things I want to bring up here. And the first thing that really stands out to me is how comfortable Terry feels writing about Black people. I found that quite funny. I was like, who is this man to say anything about the Black community? <laughs> like, stay in your lane. I think it really speaks to this current moment as well, because white people, largely, are obsessed with what Black people are doing, right? And if it's not kind of like an, an actual leeching of the culture, it is about this weird idea, mythic idea, fictional idea they have in their head that Black people are somehow more homophobic, more transphobic, more bigoted, less progressive than any other community. And I find that really funny because this article was written in 1990, right? And so to speak about Black people's homophobia in 1990 as if it was not symptomatic of a structural national homophobia, I think is pretty rich, right? And I think this is part of how white supremacy works. This is actually part of how queerness works when it's coded as white, is that queerness has to set itself, like whiteness, has to set itself in opposition to something. Here's what we stand for by telling you what we're not. And we tell you what we're not by pointing at all those heathen Negroes who are homophobic and transphobic and look at this report and look at this research as if white people haven't proven themselves to be the most homophobic, transphobic people on earth. So that's the thing that stood out for me immediately. I was like, this is astonishing. The hubris, I think, uh, is not surprising for a white gay, but um, to read that 31 years later and to see that nothing has changed, I think was really quite, that's my first thought. I am so glad that, <laughs> I'm so glad, because I was reading this article and obviously, um, the way that the podcast works is that I go through an article from that time and talk about the homophobia and what the article itself is talking about. But when I was reading it, I was going, wait, this is very similar to how the white gays still to this day talk about homophobia within the black community, as well as the same entitlement that a lot of white LGBTQ people have in talking about the way that black or Muslim communities ref uh, discuss or engage with the homosexuals or queer people within their community. And I'm so glad that you that's the first thing that you thought, because I was sitting there going, okay, my whole head was spinning. I was like, wait, actually, the conversation isn't about Justin Fashionu. It's about actually the way that Justin Fashionu is being talked about from a white LGBTQ publication. And this is partly why I wanted to bring you on and why I wanted to talk about it was because 
we all publications, all the press is susceptible and has been a proponent of white supremacy and of homophobia and Islamophobia and uh, anti-blackness and all of these H- things. HIV-phobia, yeah, st- slut-shaming, all of it. Yeah. yeah. And so Justin Fashion's experience was an experience where in the 90s, he as a black man is coming out. And sure, he's using the sun to do it, but he's coming out. And so for us, as people of color, or even you as a, as a black gay man, you would approach it as, and I'm assuming you can correct me if I'm wrong, you would approach it as, okay, this person is coming out, that's huge. It's a shame that it's part of the sun, but this is a big step. This means something, right? Yeah, and I, I found the focus on the sun weird. Of course, the sun is a awful publication. But were many other publications at the time so much better, right? Like, I don't know that there's any good platform for a gay Black person to come out in this country. There certainly wasn't then. And so I think this kind of focus on the sun, as if he'd only just come to us, we would have handled that so much better. And I don't think that's necessarily true. And Justin made whatever decisions he made at, at the time. And I don't think it's anyone's responsibility to question why he made those choices. If he felt the sun was the best place to do that, or if they gave him the biggest check, so be it. That's that's his prerogative. Um, something that stands out for me as well in this article is Terry writing that there is a, an, an alarming rise of anti-gay feeling within the Black community. Now, of course there is, right? This is 1990. Yeah. It is the middle of the HIV crisis. Of course there's a rise in homophobia, right? Of course there's a rise in fear of HIV. Why are Black people being like harpooned for this, right? That anti-gay, anti-HIV, anti-AIDS sentiment was throughout the nation. It was every conceivable community. And so why is it Black people are the worst of them all, right? And it's just so convenient that white people are able to separate themselves from Blackness again by saying, we're not like them. Mm. You know, we're more progressive. He also talks about Black people being in the grips of religious mania, as if this country isn't in the grips of religious mania, as if this country <laughs> isn't founded upon a religious mania, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It, the church, what is the Church of England? Like, it's just so ridiculous. And, and yeah. it's so uh, selective how white people use the very systems and structures that they create and propagate and make worse against the very yeah. people. And this is the thing about my, about my story was, you know, Patrick Strudwick at BuzzFeed asked me on the phone, I'll never forget this. Shouldn't you have known better? There's always an assumption that Black people and people of color should come out of the womb already, already formed. Yeah. That we should be inured to the effects of white supremacy. That we should be inured to the effects of transphobia and anti-HIV sentiment and slut-shaming yeah. and all the stuff that society kind of generates and spews out daily. We, as Black people and people of color, are supposed to have always ignored that and always known better. And I find this to be, in, it's, it's here, it's evident in this article from 1990, it's evident right now. Black people are somehow supposed to be above white supremacy, yeah. right? We're supposed to be above yeah. the very mechanism that makes yeah. our lives such a living hell in the first place. And I find it so rich, right? Because in this moment, what we're saying is lots and lots of white people asking for patience, space, understanding, hand-holding, compassion. How are they supposed to know? How are we supposed to know that we live in a white supremacist society? I'm unlearning, I'm reading. There is a patience and a space that white people are asking for that they historically have not granted black people and people of color. I just find it all very instructive. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, you know, uh, this is precisely why I wanted you to come on, Josh, is because through your transformation and your growth, you've gained an immense privilege, which is the privilege of seeing the bullshit. I mean, I say that with a caveat. I don't mean privilege in the sense that, like, it's a privilege. Mm -hmm. And so articles like this that we see, you know, this conversation was supposed to be about poor Justin Fashionu. And what I wanted to sort of make it about is actually that even white LGBTQ publications to this day perform solidarity for all queer people until the people of color start doing stuff that they don't like. And suddenly it's all of that is forgotten. Where is the solidarity? Where is the sense of community? It's suddenly the separation from they are a danger to us and therefore I get to critique them in whatever way possible, failing to realize yeah. that there is so much more nuance to it, that why we as people of color, have, as queer people of color, have to accept the nuances of being black and gay or Muslim and gay. We aren't afforded uh, the ability to actually allow our voices to be heard about it. It becomes an imposition of white LGBTQ voices on how our community and how our culture works. And that yeah. doesn't work anymore. That's that's like a stone cold no. Like it cannot happen in the 21st century when we have established ourselves as having a say and what we want and desire being central to our liberation, not the opinions or desires of the white LGBTQ community, period. Yeah. And I mean, look, the way that White gays, let's just be, you know, narrow it down a little bit. You know, yeah. The way that white gays, I think, treat, have treated me in the past, um, and even now, um, some white gays, I should say, have treated me then and now, um, is really incongruous. This desire to, like, what do we, what do people want? Do you want people to learn and get better, or do you want people to go away? And I think in, for many people, they just want me to go away. I could solve cancer, and like, they would still want me to go away. And so then it's not about the mistakes, right? It's not about a 25-year-old angry person who didn't know how else to communicate with the world or communicate his feelings. It becomes about get this bad N-word away from me. Make this guy go away. Yeah, it's a deep resentment that is fueled by something that isn't based on justice or retribution or accountability or love, which is the essence of what justice is about, which is... We're making the world a better place and we want everyone to come with us, even the people that fuck up. And if the people that are really fucking up, that's who we cut out. But right now, nobody's murdering anyone in, within this space. So why aren't we approaching the people around us with love and compassion and kindness when we know that they know that they fucked up? Well, let me just say something on that, actually, because yeah. I, I think this is a really important point. Last year, there was lots of talk noise around what kindness is. And what's missing from this conversation about kindness and, and compassion is a really honest look at the societies in which we live. They're not kind and compassionate societies, right? I don't think people are naturally kind and compassionate to people who they disagree with, right? It's not something that yeah, we're taught agreed. necessarily. Now, some of us grow to be kind and compassionate, which I think we have to be honest about. And there's yes. work, right? There's work to be kind. There's work to be compassionate. There's work to love. I'm reading a book at the moment by Lamar Jarrell Bruce, and he's talking about radical compassion, right? Which is what you're talking about. It's showing yes, up yes. and standing next to someone, even when they've done something wrong, even when you think they're wrong, and loving them and saying, but let's be better together, right? It's extending yeah. ourselves in that way. And I think that we really have to work on that as a community, how we show yeah. up for each other across racial lines, right? Across gender identity. Yeah. I think we all yeah. have work to do. And I think that's part of sometimes what still hurts about what happened is that... I know for a fact that people are still 
thinking about me in this way. I'm 35, and I know people are thinking about me as a 25-year-old, right? And not as the person I've become. And, and sometimes that hurts. And it hurts because I think that there are so many people who haven't made the progress, right? There are so many people who aren't doing the work. And I think that we all are reflecting what we're capable of when we extend compassion, understanding, and empathy to other people, right? We're showing what we think of ourselves when we do that for others. And I think that's something that we all have to learn to be a lot better at. Absolutely. The idea of justice is, particularly in the West, is becoming about proving that you are caring and compassionate by being angry and resentful at that which you can easily point at. And so it becomes a battle between I am pushing myself away, I am distancing myself from this evil bad person, and therefore I am doing the work through that. Yeah. Like just because right. I can... Sh <laughs> yeah. Like that's the idea <laughs> behind it, right? Essentially that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. That's it's that, funny. look, I am not this person. And But then it's like, okay, so what action or quote-unquote work are you doing to really contribute to this world that you want where these people that you do not like are not continuously participating yeah. in it? And at that point, people just go, oh, actually, whatever, I'm going through a lot, I don't want to deal with that. And it's like, okay, fine. Why are you projecting that in a way that is, that is harmful? Yeah. So, Josh, I wanted to kind of close this episode with your thoughts on what is possible and what is next going forward for the community when it comes to addressing the issues of both the press and the kind of vilification by them? I think we all have to be really conscious of, firstly, the way our trans and non-binary siblings are being treated in the press at the moment and where we can speak out against the way they're being treated. There are so many parallels between how our trans siblings are being treated and how gay men were treated in the 80s. I think that's been really well documented. I think that we just need to exercise our voices for those of us who can speak up and, and show real meaningful solidarity with our trans siblings. I think that we have to be really critical of what we're reading. You know, you've done a lot of work in this, Shamir, about misinformation and disinformation. I'm reminded that Toni Morrison used to go through the New York Times with a red pen. Right, So she didn't just read the New York Times and, and read whatever was delivered to her. She took her red pen to it. She asked questions. She crossed things out. She did grammar and syntax corrections. Like She really engaged with what she was reading. And I think we all have the benefit of her wisdom and her knowledge as a result of, of that. It's also worth pointing out that actually a lot of what Palestinians do and have been doing since the Intifada has been to actually take the newspapers like Toni Morrison used to do and rub out or uh, rewrite what the New York Times in particular, even yesterday um, and today, the crisis that's happening in Palestine, you see them showing you, this is what the press is saying, this is what the press is getting wrong with a red pen. And I think in my own experience, one of the things I'm really grateful for of the situations that I've been through is that I've learned to show my learning. And I think showing my learning has been very important for me. I do it on Busy Being Black. I do it on my Instagram. I, I just share it on Twitter. I'm constantly taking information, constantly learning, constantly being corrected by people who are offering new ways to think about things and new things to read and to watch. And I think that if we can show more of our learning, where do we find this information? What's forming our opinion in this way? What's informing our opinion? I think it'd be more helpful for all of us. We, we have this thing in the community where people 
show up as if they're already formed, as if they've always been perfect, as if they're not constantly in a process of learning and unlearning and relearning and doing over and saying sorry and being better. I think that we have to be more honest that we're all really on a journey and, and many of us are trying the best we can. And the last thing I'll say is that we've got to practice compassion. We've got to figure out how to how we do it. And that's even to the people that we don't necessarily like. I don't have to like you to want you to be happy. I don't have to like you to want you to be successful. And I don't have to like you to want you to be the best version of yourself. I think it was Tupac who said, I still want you to eat, but not at my table. <laughs> so that's how I feel now. Yeah. That's how I, that's well, how exactly. I view compassion. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to know, finally, what can, not the press in general, but what do you think is still missing from LGBTQ publications like Gay Times? And what do you think needs to change with immediacy in engaging and growing this community? I think there's two things. One, we have to be very honest about the function LGBTQ media in this country really serves, which is a commercial one. And that's fine. We live in a capitalist society. And so we as minoritized and marginalized communities have to be honest about what representation yeah. means within those terms. But I would also love to see a queer media that was politically queer. And what I mean by that is, you know, Kathy J. Cohen, the Black feminist, wrote a lot about how a queer politics would mean that we don't just care about queer people, but that we care about people who are minoritized and marginalized, irregardless of their sexuality. And an example she uses is presumably heterosexual, low-income Black women right, whose sexuality is already read as deviant, who are already ostracized and marginalized. How do queer people show up for those women? And I think that we could be doing a lot more of that as a community. I think that's what, what would make me engage with LGBTQ media more in this country if it wasn't just about the coolest new person or gay guy, white, another cis white gay coming out and getting a Netflix mm -hmm. series, like... It's very boring, but how are we as a community standing in solidarity with Palestinians? Yeah. <laughs> how are we standing in solidarity with trans people? Yeah. How are we standing in solidarity with occupied countries, right? Like this is a queer problem too, right? We've got queer siblings all over the world who are being killed, attacked, but also who need moments of representation, of levity and of joy, right? It's not all bad in the world. So I'd love to see just a bit more of a comprehensive analysis of what it means to be queer in the 21st century. Yeah. And I think what's really important is that the, the kind of political nature, for example, of gay media can also at times be, well, it's not what you're saying, it's my addition to it, is that it can also be wrong in the same way that this Media Watch article was quite clear in its demonization of, of the black community, is that though that gay men can be political, it can also be done badly. And so it needs to be curated in a way that centers voices and communities which are marginalized and which it takes into account of intersectionality, not just as a buzzword, but literally. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Shamir. For a deeper understanding of some of the topics and issues we covered in this episode, Josh has very kindly put together a recommended reading list. Terrorist Assemblages by Jasper Pua, Queer Lovers and Hateful Others by Jin Haritawon, Towards a Gay Communism by Mario Miel, and One Dimensional Queer by Roderick Ferguson. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Media Watch with me, Shameh Sunny. You've been listening to Media Watch with Shameh Sunny, a Gay Times original podcast series. Subscribe and listen to more episodes of Media Watch on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
Make sure you're following at Gay Times on all major social media platforms for the latest LGBTQ plus news, culture, and entertainment. If you enjoyed this episode of Media Watch, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And finally, make sure you check out Gay Times Plus, our membership platform for everyone in our community. You can find more information at gaytimesplus.com.